Andy, was it okay to submit simultaneous grant applications for the same program? Yes. Wow, that was like the shortest (laughs) answer ever. It's a speed round question. (laughs) What's the next question? Let's move on. Um, Would you like me to elaborate? (laughs) I I think that would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so I think the, the, I mean, so the answer is obviously yes. Like there's nothing that prevents you from submitting infinite grant applications for the same program. Right. I think what the, I think the reason the question's being asked is there's like an un, sort of unwritten section of the question is like, is it, is it ethical to take more money or to request more money than we need for a program? Like, is that a smart thing to do? Because if we get both of these, we're, what do we do next? Do we have to go back to one of the grantors and said, oh, thanks. Turns out we actually already have this money, right? And yeah. depending on depending on the program, I mean, maybe you can't scale it. Maybe there's no way. Like you really only need $10,000 and you've asked two donors for $10,000. And if you get $20,000, you're not quite sure what you're going to do. Um, depending on the funder, there's like lots of different ways you can go about it. You can say, thank you so much. It turns out we got another gift that covers these same things. Would you be willing to like modify the modify the grant so that we can apply it to something else? Or could we extend it by a year and use this for next year's funding? Or is there a way that we can use some of this to sort of scale? So even though we told you the $10,000 was going to serve 50 people, is there a way for us to serve 100 people now, now that we've got twice as much money as we thought we were going to have? Um, you just need to think creatively and maybe have that in your back pocket just in case you get it. So one of the things that we've talked about before in, in terms of budgeting for these kinds of things, because this is sort of falls into a budget question too, is like when, how many, how many grants should we go after to fulfill our budget? And one of the things you'll, once you've done this a lot, you'll be able to look at a particular grant and your staff will be able to tell you with pretty good precision, the likelihood that you're going to get a particular grant. So let's say, okay, we're going to go after this one and whoever, you know, the folks that are in charge of it will say, I think there's like a 50% chance of getting this grant. And they're usually right, right? If it's 50%, it's basically a coin flip. So if you're going after two grants and both of them have a 50% likelihood, you're probably going to get one of the two of them. That's just, yeah. and, and the longer you work, the better you get at guessing at that. And um, you can you can come up with a really good estimate that way. So if it's two at 100%, then you need to have in your back pocket already, like how are we going to spend the other $10,000 or whatever we're asking for? If it's two at 50%, you maybe don't work quite so hard on it. If it's like two at 12% or 25%, like you're probably not going to get either of them. So it's not something you really need to worry about. Um I don't know that, you know, so the federal government is a different question. If you're getting two federal government grants uh, for the same program, uh, you're going to have a much more difficult time convincing them to modify what you've asked them for. Although it's unlikely that you would be going after two federal government grants that are going to be covering the exact same program the exact same way, because that's just not how they're written. Federal grants are written in such a specific way that you almost never see two different agencies or two different grant opportunities that would cover the exact same activity. So that's probably going to be less likely, but you know, it's not, there's nothing wrong with it. I would do it. I don't think that anybody would say don't do it unless you're like, you know, going to cheat. Right. And like lie to one of the grantors, we would never recommend that. I don't think anybody would. No. And I would add to this from 
a funder lens and a foundation lens, private foundation or private funder, when you look at a grant proposal and you see here's the program, here's, you know, the total expense of our program or whatever, whatever the request is for, here's our program budget and here's how we're going to fund this and here's what portion of money, you know, your, if, if you give us this grant is going to help fund this. I like seeing that overall picture, right? And we know that a lot of these proposed, and I like seeing who else they're asking for, like asking for money for, like from, right? So like if there's four funders and it says two secured, one pending and and we're pending or in process because they're asking for it, I also think that shows me a picture of okay, good. So they're not relying just on me. Now that's prob- that's very contingent on the funder, right? Some funders may be like, I only want to be the only game in town. I really want to be the nugget. So I also think thinking about that when you're putting together that program budget, thinking about does this, is, does this funder only want to be a certain percent of the total program, like funding a certain percent of it because they don't want it to be overly reliant. So thinking about those things is important too. Um, there's a, a large funder that uh, I think you're aware of Andy. I, I know you're aware of, and I know one of the things they they have always prided themselves on is they want to be the majority funder of a project or program. And so the nonprofits have had to really think about what does that look like, especially from a sustainability standpoint. Knowing this is a one-time grant, or you know, even if it's given out over a few years, wow, like what does this look like, and what's our sustainability plan? But still making sure that they paint that picture and their narrative and their program budget. Um, and let's be candid. There's sometimes like funders look at things and say, who else is funding you? And it can add some credibility or even some friendly competition. So think about that too, as you're doing this. Nonprofit governance. Nonprofit answers. Nonprofit board. Nonprofit management. Nonprofit marketing. Nonprofit resources. Welcome to Nonprofit Everything. The podcast where hosts Andy Shurek and Stacy Wedding answer your questions about all things nonprofit. Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us for another episode of Nonprofit Everything, your source for all things nonprofit. And we just love the format like of Q&A style and bringing in guest experts. And you are the ones who help keep that format going for us. So nonprofiteverything.com is one of the key places you can send us questions. And if you're a guest expert or you know of a guest expert, you want to mix it up a little bit with who you hear from, please like fill out the little form on the website. We've got a few questions about your expertise or what you want to share. And also, I want to remind all of you, sometimes we say things that you may disagree with or you may have a different fact about or expertise about, and you are welcome at any time to push back or to say, hey, I've got a different opinion. Right, Andy? Like, we love those. We do love those. Those are great. Yeah. So anyways, this is an invitation to do all the things and course to enjoy another episode of Nonprofit Everything with my smarty pants, fabulous co-host, Andy Shurik.
Our organization recently hired its first finance manager who went through QuickBooks and sent me what he says are fundraising numbers going back to 2017. These numbers are significantly lower than all the financial and fundraising reports presented to the board over many years, which was before I worked at this nonprofit. From what I've been told, the prior finance staffer was a CPA and quite meticulous. I'd like to trust the numbers of the people before me, but I'm also concerned about this discrepancy. I have little finance experience, and I am wondering if there is an explanation for the conflicting numbers. Um, yeah, there might be. Um, there probably is. It kind of depends on how big your organization is. If they've gotten audited financial statements, you can generally trust that audited financial statements are accurate. And that's what's usually being shared with the board. The board looks at them. The board makes comments on them. Um, they've seen them. If you're too small for that, if this really is an organization that's just doing the 990N, you're doing it themselves, um, there may be a chance that numbers don't make sense. Uh, um, but if you said that the prior finance staffer was actually pretty meticulous, there's a good chance that that things were done properly and that as someone who doesn't understand finance super well, you just might not understand what they're looking at. Um, some of the areas of confusion that I've seen are how pledges are handled. So this is different between for-profits and nonprofits, the way pledges work. So if in a, in a for-profit, you have what's called the matching principle, where like if you have money coming in, the reason it's coming in is not because people just gave you money. It's because they're buying a product or service. And so you're trying to connect that revenue with the expense of the product and service. It's called the matching principle where you're connecting those two things together. The money came in, it's attached to this product that I sold you. So the expense of buying the product is like linked in with the, the timing of that revenue. So those things are connected together. In a, in a nonprofit, people are just giving you money for the hell of it. They're just like, here's a check, right? What's it for? It's for your mission. So you you lose the sense of like, so what specific activity did that revenue fund? Does it happen at a later date? Did it already happen? Are you filling a hole? It gets really confusing. And so the IRS and actually FASB has just said, look, when someone says they're going to give you money, they that's like a, 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 a contract, basically. If so, if I give you a pledge and say, I'm going to give you $10,000 and I told you on this day, that's the day that that money officially arrives in your system as revenue. It just also creates um, an accounts receivable activity that you then need to collect on later. There's like a donations receivable account somewhere that's that says, okay, it hasn't actually turned into cash yet, but the revenue is already there. And this gets really confusing because the finance people say, okay, we got the pledge, that's revenue, but then the development team doesn't want to actually talk about it until the money arrives or they want to get credit for it twice. They want to get credit for it when they got the pledge and then they want to get credit for it again when the money actually shows up, which, you know, to be fair, you have to do work for both of those things to get the money both times. You had to do money for the pledge. I mean, you had to do work for the pledge. You have to do work to get the pledge paid. Um, so they should get some credit for it. They just can't double count it. So there may be confusion about timing that's involved, which is why the board is hearing one thing and then the financial statements look a little bit differently. Um, but I mean, to be honest, it's really hard to tell without just sending it to us and having us look at it and say like, well, this is why it's like this. So I would rely on if you're getting an audit, if you have an auditor or you have a bookkeeper that works for you, like see if you know, show them what you're looking at and saying, how do I not understand this? What is, what is wrong with this? Or what is wrong with my concept of how this is supposed to work that makes me confused? 
And they should either be able to say, yes, it's correct. This is why. Or, oh, gosh, I'm glad you found this. We need to change our audit findings. <laughs> like your organization is a giant mess. And thanks for thanks for bringing it up. Right. Those are your two your two solutions. <laughs> And I wonder, and it, it's not knowing, right? I would think the CPA would never would never do this. But I, I also wonder if there's, you know, it could be something as simple as in-kind. I've seen people who have a budget, right, that includes in-kind and those that don't or find. And so that can also make a big difference. It's like, oh, well, this budget looks like we have a $5 million budget and this budget's whatever, $4 million. Like, where is that big difference? And I, not knowing, I'm just using that as sort of a layman's example or a lay person's example. But I just am kind of like, could it be something as simple as that, right? That just there was an oversight or improper coding or not enough coding that, although it sounds like your, your last finance person probably would have coded it and been clear about it. But I just, I just wonder if it's sort of something, it could be something easy and easy to point to and not stress yourself out over. That's what I hear is sort of the the underlying like, gosh, I don't know a lot about finance to be able to figure this out. So I guess I would also empower the person who wrote this to think about, you don't have to be an expert in everything. And, but, but you can brush, you can get some basic finance 101 and understanding some financials that might make you feel a little more confident in some of this. And I do think, yeah, getting some support, some outside support, whether you find a volunteer or bring in somebody who um, is willing to share or, you know, to your point, Andy, I think I would assume this probably wouldn't be an issue if they were large enough or had decided to have an audit. Uh, But it just feels like there's an opportunity to educate yourself a little bit so you feel a little confident in this, but also to try to get that expertise so you can rest at night because it could be something really simple and really basic that just um, maybe as a non-finance person, you're you're not asking or not seeing. Or you've just uncovered years and years of fraud. Well, and that's what I was trying to like avoid because I was like, let's hope that's not the case. <laughs> that is the worst case scenario, right? It's better to know than not know. I do want to offer this though. I do want to say this and I would be, this is sort of a divergence. So I'm going to go take us off on a little side trail, Andy, uh, with this question. So I've seen organizations when they get into a situation like this, they will think, oh, let me go ask my board member who has finance expertise to come and help me figure this out. And while theoretically that, could work. I have never found that to work. I find that when that starts to happen, it builds and you bring the board into operations. Now it breeds uh, some lack of confidence in what's going on in the organization, some overstep even if, you know, if, especially if it's a board member who doesn't understand governance versus operations and then gets like, oh, hyper fixated in all your finance operations details that you're like, please stay out of my business. Why did I ever bring you in to begin (laughs) with? So I don't know what your take is on this because I know board members can be a resource. I also just go, this feels like something that I wouldn't bring in the board yet is my personal opinion. And, you know, I, I don't know. I would rather bring in someone who's familiar with nonprofit finance and understands nonprofit finance because 
half the time you have board members who, even though there's some transferability that like don't understand the details of your nonprofit finance. So like, is there somebody else that's like, like a you Andy, uh, right? Like, but is there someone like that, that you can bring in who truly gets kind of the, the things to look for, like what you were sharing about the pledges? Yeah. And I, I say this every time I do an in-person presentation and it's that there are a lot of people in your community that are in the same boat that you're in. Like that we, we keep, we get confused because we think we're all in competition with each other because there may be grant opportunities that many of us are going after that are the same and only one person can win. Um, but in reality, we're actually all trying to solve the same problem or similar problems across the sector. And so you should feel comfortable enough to reach out to people and other nonprofits in your community if you have questions like that. I mean, and just think about it if someone called you. Like if you were working at a nonprofit and somebody had a question and worked at a different nonprofit and they said, hey, can you answer? Can you talk to me about this? What would you say? You would probably say, sure, if I can help, I'd be happy to, right? Um, and this is especially true sort of in the finance world and in the program world where like we're a lot less we're a lot less concerned with like who's going to eat, who's fundraising cheese, right? We're more into like, yeah, let's, let's make the whole sector better at this. And yeah, sure. I know a lot about having to keep track of in-kind food donations because I did it for a long time. So if you've got a question about that, I'm happy to answer your question. Um, so call around, make some other friends in similar positions in other organizations. Look at if there's if there are organizations in your community, something like the Alliance for Nevada Nonprofits or YNPN, which is the Young Nonprofit Professionals Network. I mean, there are lots of ways that you can connect up with people that are also in the sector and just make friends. And then you've got somebody to call and says, hey, this looks really weird. Can you look at this with me? And, you know, then you've got an extra brain on it and they can say, oh, but have you thought about this? Or, oh, you found massive fraud. We should probably tell somebody, <laughs> Right. Um, but that's a really good way to get help that I don't think many people use. And, and to be honest, as a former CFO, every time someone called me from another nonprofit and asked me a question, I said, sure, how can I help? 100% of the time. Here's a question for you, Andy. I founded my organization about five years ago. And if I'm being honest, my board and I were overly ambitious and overzealous around the programs we wanted to create. We're starting to make a name for ourselves by those we serve and a handful of funders. But I don't think this pace and the number of programs we are juggling is sustainable. How do we scale back on programming and the number of people served without making people think we've failed or are going backwards? It's oh, a great question. And it's a, first of all, congratulations on making it to five years. Yeah. That is a huge nonprofit milestone. I don't know if you've realized that. So the vast majority of nonprofits that are founded do not make it to five years. They go away before that point because exactly what you're pointing out, they are, they have bitten off way more than they could chew. They're excited about 10,000 things and they try to do all of them at once. Um, and it turns out to be a lot harder than you expect it to be a brand new entrant in the market and to convince funders that that you're solid and you're going to be around for a while. So congratulations on that. Um, 
this is one of my favorite parts of sort of the nonprofit life cycle, which is the beginning of adolescence. So congratulations. You're only five, but you're a teenager, right? You're a, you can be a a tween. (laughs) Things are changing. (laughs) It's going to get awkward. Um, this is a good time. So you theoretically, you've been doing strategic plans. You've been, you've been engaged in that board planning process where you're sitting down with the people, your stakeholders. So not just the board, but the rest of the stakeholders and trying to figure out what it is you want to be when you grow up. As you go through that process, you should be able to, to identify which programs are going to be your core mission-related programs, and what things are probably not as important. So there's two ways that you can decide something's not important. One is, is it not getting you the sort of effect that you want? So you've got, you've got some sort of theory of change, you know, by doing this thing, this is the outcome. Does the outcome meet sort of some standard? Like which, which activities are you engaging in that are, that are doing really good job meeting that need? And what programs are you engaging in that maybe aren't? Um, so that's one lens you can look at it. And the other lens is like, what do donors like to fund? And I hate saying this because it's absolutely a hundred percent the tail wagging the dog, but there are cases in which the, you can get funding because you are in a particular program area. You're doing a certain thing that donors like donors are willing to give you money for that. And you use that to sort of drive the other potentially less popular programs, um, I'll give you an example from, of course, the food bank world, which is where all my examples come from, because it's easily, <laughs> it's in my brain already, and it's easily understandable. So donors love kids. They absolutely love kids. They will give money for kids all day long. Donors don't necessarily feel the same way about seniors. <laughs> they, they, there's not the pool of money that's required. I mean, se- kids are like, they write cute thank you notes and crayons and draw pictures. I mean, you get such great feedback that you can use from a, from a sort of donor response perspective where you can say, look at this. Oh, it's cute. You got a thank you note from a kid who says, thank you for the Vienna sausages or whatever. Right. Seniors are the opposite. They are prickly. They have opinions. They don't, they don't write cute thank you notes in crayon. They probably should. Maybe that's, maybe we should work on that is figuring out how to get more crayons to seniors. But what happened, and then they say, and then they don't, they don't thank you properly either. So if you give specifically with foods, if you give a senior a box, a lot of times the response you get isn't thank you so much. It was delicious. It's oh, I don't really need this. Give it to somebody who does, right? Which is not a great, <laughs> you know, it doesn't, it doesn't really meet the donor's yeah. needs of like thanking them appropriately, yeah. right? It's harder. It's a, it's, it's a difficult, different conversation. Long, long way of saying that it's a lot easier to raise money for kids than it is to raise money for seniors. However, seniors still need the food. Like you, so you, what you do is you focus on children's programs. You talk about children's programs and then you try to raise as much unrestricted money as you can like on the backs of recognizing that children are interesting. Um, so there's technical ways you can do it. You know, if you're doing direct mail or something, you you can have a picture of a kid. Just don't say this money is going to be used to feed, feed children. You say this money will be used where it need be is needed the most, right? So something like that to let the donor know ahead of time that just because I'm showing you a picture of a child with an apple doesn't mean I'm giving this specific child this specific piece of fruit, Right. So yeah. you're going to put the money where it needs to go so that you can then funnel it into those sort of high impact senior programs that are more difficult to raise money for. So long way of saying you need to look at another long way of saying you need to sort of look at the basket, <laughs> like the whole overlying basket of what you're doing and figure out which ones are driving money, 
and which ones are driving impact and then figure out how to focus on those to put your most effort into those two. Once those are solid and you're raising enough money and then you've got the sort of mental and staff capacity to expand out into other program areas, that's when you sort of look at your list again and you say, you know, we really liked this program. It was high impact, low revenue. Maybe we've got enough cash now we can slot this one in because it's going to make this metric get better or it's going to service this challenge that we're trying to deal with. So, I mean, I think it's a, you know, it's sort of a slow process, but by by virtue of you being around for five years, you should have the data and the knowledge to be able to at least start that analysis. What do you think, Stacey? I think analysis, I think analysis and assessment are where it's at to start with. But what I hear from the person who asked this question is the perception and how they message this out into the community, right? What are people going to think if we're cutting back? What are right? What what is that going to feel like? Does it make us look like a failure? And so I actually think that it's a cool opportunity to share your sort of where you've been and where you're going. So, hey, like we started this organization five years ago. Here was the big, bold dream and vision. That vision hasn't changed. And we've tried several different things. Like we've we've done these different programs. We've done all of this. And we've been tracking data and telling it, just being really transparent about it. We've been tracking it. And we actually think our strengths, our capacity, our sort of what we represent is best served by putting more focus and energy into these two programs moving forward. We think we can go deeper with the impact or or broader. There's a lot of, you know, outliers or things that extend beyond just these programs that we want to build on. So rather than trying to be all things to all people, we're going to focus on the the things we do best and do well based on the data and based on our own strengths as an organization. And we've also identified these, these other partners if they exist, right? Here's two other partners or three other partners that we're really excited to help transition some of our other programs to, or that that really we found are, are doing really well on this spot. So I think the messaging becomes, it's less about we're cutting and more like we're a thoughtful organization that assesses regularly. We take that data and then we we focus where we're going to have the far furthest reach and impact, and it's going to be in this area. So it's more that story than it is we're cutting three programs. And and like I said, if you have partners or you've identified others that you can refer this out to and you're comfortable, feel free to share that with people, right? Like, hey, we we know that, like, we believe in collaboration. We believe that not all of us can be rock stars and everything. So here's what we're doing instead. So I actually think it's a great opportunity to share the story and not, it actually makes you look like a more thoughtful and more strategic organization than it does failure at all. I think piggybacking on that too, when you're in the nonprofit and you're focusing on this all the time, and I could see how that becomes something that you like a a story you don't want to tell. Like we've got, we're serving 10,000 people. If we do this refocus, we're going to serve 7,000 people, right. right? I could guarantee you that the only people that are going to notice are people that are inside the organization. 
So when you're talking to donors, like donors don't remember. No. Like the unless it's a unless it's a major donor that's yeah. on the board that you're talking to over and over and over again about all these things, they've completely forgotten about you until you pop up in their memory again. And when you pop up in their memory, they don't remember that whole list of statistics about who you served last year. So some of this may just be an internal perception like I feel I feel like I'm not doing what I need to do. Um you're the external perception, I guarantee you, no one's going to notice. <laughs> it's like, they're not, they're not, they're not into it that the way you are. Yeah. And so as long as you're comfortable with a refocus saying the reason we're doing this is for long-term sustainability, it's for focusing our impact on the high impact programs. Like as long as you've got that in your mind and you can communicate that with those, those close people that know what's going on, I think you're going to be fine. I wouldn't be super concerned about this personally at all. Well, that's it. You got to the end of another episode of Nonprofit Everything. Um, I, I must say that we do, Stacy and I are doing this over Zoom so we can actually see each other because we, we haven't been able to do it in person in a long time. We started out like in the same room with two microphones. That was really good. And then, and then the pandemic happened and we turned over to Zoom and we have just stopped doing it in person because this is convenient. We've sort of figured it out. Um, only some technical difficulties sometimes. Which, by <laughs> the way, are think, always on my end, everybody, just so you know. <laughs> I didn't say that. Andy say is that. the most I, patient human. He is the most patient <laughs> human ever. I just want to say that. So I am not tech savvy, everyone. So uh, Andy's my go-to guy for all things. And even when we record this, sorry, Andy, I just hijacked your intro, but our <laughs> closing. But I, um, I do have to say this quick side note because it's like this thing where... I'm a little embarrassed, right? Like there's some things, you know, that stick in your brain, some that don't. For some reason, the what doesn't stick in my brain are all the technical logistics of how I have to set up my system to make sure it records properly so that Andy <laughs> has an easier job with editing. And so for some reason, whatever reason, this doesn't stick in my brain. But Andy is uh, such a nice guy and he never makes me feel bad. I just, I do a number on myself. So I'm sorry, Andy, for all of that. There's my, my apology for the day. No, I think that's I think that's important to note that like your brain is not it's not an infinite like filing system where everything that goes into it needs to be retrievable. Like you have to recognize that there's some things that you just don't have to remember because you can just ask. You don't have to you absolutely don't need to remember it again. Like think of how much more brain space we have that we don't have filled up with people's phone numbers anymore. Cause it used to be, you would know everybody's phone number. And now I don't think anybody knows anybody's phone number. No. Like I know like maybe three phone numbers now. And I used to know like dozens, if not hundreds. Yeah. Right. And so that now we've got brain space to keep track of what line on the 990 certain information goes on oh, dear. or, <laughs> or, or, or clever things that we've heard um, executive directors say in board meetings that we want to repeat things like that. Um, so that's good. I think it's good that you don't necessarily remember all this stuff because why would you? You've got space to keep more important information in. I just so I, I started out the Zoom thing because I just wanted to share like now that it's way past anybody using these things, being required to use things like Zoom to have conversations. But I just did this recently and it's, it's, it has made my life so much better. I put googly eyes on my webcam. So now <laughs> it's like a little guy up there, like smiling at me. So I, I have made more eye contact with people when I'm on phone calls because there's this cute little googly eyes on my webcam. So try that. That's your, that's your random tip from Andy to close the podcast.